So if you have a Bible handy, I'd like to invite you to turn in it with me to the Gospel of Luke. Otherwise, your attention to the screen, the words will be up there as well. We're in a series called Sent. And as part of that series, we're looking at this chapter in Luke five times together. This is the second one of those occasions. And so listen as I read those first 12 verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking, whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcome, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. The lesson was held under an olive tree in the garden. The teacher bent down, picked up one of the olives that had fallen to the ground and held it in his hand. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few, he said. That's what Messiah told his disciples about the harvest of salvation, a harvest that every child of God must reap. On what harvest was he basing this? The harvest of Israel, I would guess, said one student. That's correct. But the harvest of Israel was not only one harvest. Its harvest was always made up of many harvests. First came the barley harvest in the spring, then the wheat harvest, the fruit harvest, the fig harvest, the date harvest, the pomegranate harvest, the olive harvest, and lastly, the grape harvest. Every harvest had a season. If you didn't reap the harvest in the appointed time of that season, you missed your chance. At the same time, everyone was needed to participate from spring to fall so that the whole harvest could be brought in. That's the way it is with the spiritual harvest as well, he said. The spiritual harvest is actually many harvests, but every harvest has its own appointed time and season. And if you don't reap the harvest in its appointed time, its season may pass. And the time to reap 
may be gone. Different spiritual harvests? What are we talking about? Well, first, there's the harvest of family. The harvest of perhaps our parents or our siblings or our children and our grandchildren, our loved ones. And there is a limited time afforded to each one of us to share God's love with them. Then there is the harvest of friends and neighbors, acquaintances and friends. Well, you see, they sort of come and they go. We might move, leaving behind old neighbors and engaging new ones. We change jobs. Co-workers, they come and they go. People don't always remain in our lives, and the truth is we won't always be there in theirs. Seasons come, seasons go, and we seldom know exactly when that season ends. Then there is a season, because you see, at some point, you and I will pass from this world And our opportunities to participate in bringing in the harvest will be gone forever. Finally, there is the end of the world. The final harvest is closer than it has ever been before. So we need to make the most of our time here and now in this world. Harvests always carry with them a sense of excitement Harvests always have a sense of urgency. So we're looking at Luke chapter 10. And in the very first verse, Luke records that Jesus appointed 72 others and he sent them out two by two to every town and to every village. And the reason for the appointing and the sending out is now explained for us in the second verse. The reason is the harvest is ready. The reason is the harvest is amazing. It is plentiful. But the workers, the workers, Jesus says, are few. And as a result, those 72 are being sent out with the sole purpose of bringing in the harvest. People are sent But people who are sent are required to do the will of the sender. Jesus was sent, the scripture says, by the Father into this world. And he came to do the will of the one who sent him. His Father's will. And that was Christ's mission. He was sent and he went. Jesus said in Luke 4, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. In John 4, Jesus says, my food, that is my mission, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then two chapters later in John 6, Jesus would again say, this is the will of him who sent me. I shall lose none of those that he has given to me. So Jesus is required to give up everything to be on mission for his father. Everything. 
he leaves his place in heaven. He gives up his soul nature as God. He takes on the human nature of a servant. He suffers at the hands of those he created. And the timeless one is then crucified and dies. He was willing to suffer and to die in order to complete his mission. Our mission is also to do the will of the one who sent us, and that's Jesus. Like the 72 who were appointed and sent, you and I are also commissioned to go to every town and every village, advancing the name of Jesus, building his kingdom, and bringing in the harvest. The commission to those 72 is ultimately extended to everyone who follows Jesus in the great commission where Jesus invites us to join him on his mission to go into every town and to every village and share the good news. It is the mark of a Christian to be Christ-like. If Jesus is sent and went, then his followers, that is those who would be like him, when they are sent, they too go. If Jesus went where he was sent, then those who follow Jesus will go where they are sent. If Jesus is concerned about the salvation and the eternal destination of those he was sent to, those who follow him are also to be concerned about the eternal destination of those they are sent to. Jesus is about ushering in the kingdom. His followers need to be focused on ushering in the kingdom. It is the nature of a bird to fly. It is in the nature of a plant to grow. It is in the nature of grass to be green. It is in the nature of Christ's followers to go when they are sent, to embrace this mission, co-mission with Christ, and to bring in the harvest. In John 4, verses 35, Jesus says, Don't you have a rabbinic saying that goes something like, It's still four months until the harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look to the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Is Jesus saying, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Just take your time. Is Jesus saying, don't worry, there is really no hurry. You have a lifetime to accomplish what God set you here for, so pace yourself. Is Jesus saying, don't get too excited. Procrastination is in. Everybody's doing it. It's okay. <laughs> Jesus is saying, no, no, no. He's saying that's wrong, wrong, wrong. He's saying, don't believe it. It's the devil's lie. It's from the pit of hell itself. Couldn't be further from the truth. Father's mission is ours with a profound urgency. Excuses, dilly-dallying, even the slightest procrastinating is not acceptable. It's not in keeping 
with the focus of the mission and with what it means to be sent. The harvest is ready, Jesus is saying. Just open your eyes. Just look around. Look in the fields. Look at your family. Look next door. Look across the street. Look at your place of employment. I went to the big house yesterday. Me and 109, 380,000 people. And I think, if we could only draw this kind of a crowd to worship God together. I'm a Bible teacher. That's just the way I think. And I know they're there to worship something quite different, but what a mission field. The spiritual harvest is ripe. The field is ready. People need to be brought to Jesus Now, here's a hard truth. If you believe that you're a follower of Jesus and you don't feel compelled to join Jesus in the harvest, if you don't have a deep sense of urgency to bring in the lost, then scripture says, Maybe you're not really a follower of Jesus. See, the question for a follower of Jesus is not, will I be involved in bringing in the harvest? <laughs> no, the question of a follower of Jesus is, how, where is God calling me to be a part of bringing in the harvest? The question is not, what will I gain? The question on the table is, what will I give up? What will I have to set aside? What will I need to sacrifice like Jesus sacrificed in order to be a part of the harvest? In this second verse of Luke chapter 10, Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. That is, there are people in whom the Spirit has been working who still need to be brought into the kingdom of God. The fields are full of them, actually. In Luke chapter 5, in the 10th verse, Jesus decides to use a fishing analogy after his disciples, and many of his disciples had been fishermen by trade, after his disciples had just caught this huge amount of fish so that their nets are absolutely overflowing. And Jesus says to them, from now on, you're going to catch men and women. You're going to catch people. God is responsible for providing the rich harvest. And then Jesus says, but there's one problem. And that problem is the workers are few. It's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't say, the harvest is huge. The laborers are few. So, so get out of your lazy chair and start going door to door in the field. Get out into the world and, and bring in this harvest. He doesn't say that. In, in spite of the urgency, in spite of this incredible need, Jesus tells his disciples, those who follow him, 
to pause and to connect with the Father. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Other translations say, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Here's how I understand that. God's mission is always first and foremost in order and in priority, a matter of prayer. You can be a believer and not be called by God to bang on the door of your neighbor and to tell them about Jesus. But you can't be a follower of Jesus, or we could say you can't be a Christian and not be passionately praying for your neighbor's lost soul. Frederick Bruner writes, a creeping death sweeps over the mission of many churches in our time because, quite simply, prayer meetings have ceased. Count Zinzendorf was 27 years old, and he took in a Moravian refugee. And before he knew it, there were over 300 Moravian refugees that were living on his estate. And he became their spiritual leader. They began praying together. They began studying the Bible together. They began growing spiritually together. On August 12, 1727, the Moravians on his estate started an all-night prayer vigil. They found a designated place to pray, and they decided they would gather in groups of three or four in one-hour increments. So that meant that there were 168 time slots each week with three to four people praying in each one of those 168 time slots, meaning that they needed everybody in this growing village, if you will, to participate. And that prayer meeting went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 110 years. By the 15th year mark, this small group had already sent out 70 missionaries around the world. One of those missionaries started a church, and that church over the next 20 years sent out over 200 missionaries. The impact of that prayer group praying together is absolutely unmeasurable. And today that incentive is the founding passion, inspiration for the 24-7 prayer movement that is sweeping over this globe. Every revival has been ignited by faithful, fervent, persistent prayer. Beneath the death of prayer in our culture, and sadly even in our churches, is the death of the belief that people need to be saved and that Jesus is the only one who can save them. In recent surveys, an increasing significant number of Christians People who call themselves Christians no longer believe that. Our understanding that faith alone in Jesus Christ saves one from their sins and from eternal suffering has declined perceptibly over the years of prayerless piety and our world's insistence 
that there are many paths to eternal life. Are you praying for your family's salvation? For your children? For your grandchildren, even if you don't know them yet? Are you praying for your friends, for your coworkers, for your neighbors, that they might know Jesus? Are you praying for the harvest? Are you praying for those who otherwise would be lost forever? Are you praying every day? Are you praying with a sense of urgency and expectation? We, you and I, are the workers that Jesus is calling. You and I are the workers that Jesus invites us to pray for. The word Luke uses, Jesus used here for workers is, is a simple, unpretentious, even unappealing term. But again, bringing in God's harvest is not about leaders. It's not about experts. It's about ordinary people, about disciples, about people who would faithfully follow Jesus, about intercessors, about people that can simply tell their story. People who just want to be like Jesus. The work is relatively simple. It's not all that complicated, truly. It's fairly simple to gather in the harvest to bring, if you will, in the sheaves to invite people to hear the gospel either from us personally or to invite them to church so they can hear about Jesus. Our common approach today is to send out trained professionals, conversion experts, pain specialists into the urban and suburban areas and into third world countries. But the truth is, the fruit has been nominal. The approach hasn't worked all that well. But then, that's not Jesus' approaches. That's ours. Here in Luke, Jesus calls us to pray that we and others would be so stirred by our neighbor's eternal destination that we'd be willing to leave our comfortable huddles and go out into the fields for the sake of the gospel. All other Christian Ministry is auxiliary to this. All other things that we do support this mission. This is the primary mission. This is the one Jesus gave us, discipling the lost so they might be found and follow him. This mission is the main mission. While many Christians would love to see the pews of their church full, God's heart is first and foremost for people to come to him. He is longing for the whole harvest to be brought in. That doesn't happen through gimmicks. It doesn't happen through programs or entertainment. It only happens when kingdom citizens begin to pray kingdom prayers for kingdom growth and are willing to be the answer to their own prayer. Just to be clear, Jesus is in calling us to pray for more church members. It's okay to do that, but that's not what the call is here. The call here is for more transformed followers of Jesus to build his kingdom. So Jesus tells them, and he tells us how we ought to pray. He says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out more workers to make 
disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have commanded you. See, the challenge of sent ones is actually fairly simple. It's to just do what the one sending us tells us to do. And that way we keep the main thing, the main thing. The mission of God is born in us and is sustained in us through prayer. Prayer is essential, was essential to the birth of the church. Before Pentecost, the disciples were all praying in the upper room. You'll remember Acts 1, verse 14. When the disciples experienced difficulties, they came together in Acts 4. And what did they do? They prayed, and God answered that prayer. When the disciples commissioned people and sent out workers out into the harvest, they prayed, Acts 13. Prayer is absolutely essential to the continued success of the harvest. Paul tells us that God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2. Paul says that it happens only in response to our prayers. James in the fourth chapter says, you do not have because you do not ask God. If we want to fill these pews, if we want to transform lives, if we want to grow his church, if we want to build God's kingdom, and I think most of us do, the place to begin is on our knees. God is able. He just awaits our request. He longs to answer our prayers, but we have not because we ask not. When was the last time you prayed for the harvest? When was the last time you prayed for your neighbor's salvation? When was the last time you prayed for revival in this nation? When was the last time you prayed for God's kingdom to grow? Everyone I know has a very low success rate in praying for the lost. Everyone I know has very low stamina in praying for the lost. It's true we hear periodic stories that inspire us. It's true that we pray with more fervor for the lost when we're praying specifically for, for a spouse or for a parent or for a child or a grandchild. But the inspiration and the perseverance seems to wear thin over the course of ordinary life. Here's the truth. Prayer and harvest always go together. Always. No prayer, no harvest. Much prayer, a great harvest. Prayer brings God's answers. Answers bring us inspiration. Inspiration brings us more workers, and more workers can offer us more prayer. The Georgian Hills Church collected 100 names. They committed to pray for each one daily, and to do that for a year. At the end of the year, 85 had committed their life to Jesus Christ. Wow. Beckwith Hills, Christian Reformed Church, Northern Grand Rapids, selected 160 homes. They decided they would pray for 80 of them on a daily basis. And then they went out and they called, knocked on the door of those 80 homes. And the 
When they did that, 69 had occupants on the inside that opened the door and welcomed them in. And in 45, they were able to present the gospel. Of the other 80, when they contacted them, very few were home, and only one invited them in. Small, small group, prayer walked their church's neighborhood. And the next Sunday, four families showed up out of the blue, they said. Sadly, all three of those churches did not continue their prayer initiative. Some of you have heard about Dwight L. Moody. He was one of the greatest evangelists in our country. And at the beginning of his ministry, he had a list of 100 people that he put in his pocket that he would take out on a daily basis and pray through that they might come to know Jesus Christ. And by the time he died, 96 had become believers. Now, most of us would say, wow, 96, that is an awesome average. Kudos. But at his funeral, the last four came to faith. 100 out of 100, prayer. W. Stanley Moynihan, co-founder of what you and I know today as World Vision, said, and I quote, let us stop complaining that we don't have enough people, enough money, enough tools. That is simply not true. There is no shortage of anything we need except vision, prayer, and will, desire, and commitment. Prayer is the one resources, resource immediately accessible to every one of us. The undeniable biblical theme is that prayer gives birth to new life. This is the sort of prayer that God just loves to answer. Prayer for somebody else's salvation. Prayer for their inclusion in his kingdom. But prayer for the lost requires persistent, passionate prayer. Harvest prayer is the slow, unglamorous process of being in mission. But it results in new life. Sadly, the harvest is still plentiful, but the barns aren't full because the prayers and the prayers are few. With the sinking of the RMS Titanic, more than 2,200 people were tossed into the frigid waters of the Atlantic. In the days that followed, the, the names of the passengers were printed on onshore lists in two simple columns, saved and lost. God's list is equally as simple, saved and lost, harvested, still in the field. Eternal life, eternal death. Our ledgers tend to be far more cluttered with all kinds of unnecessary columns do they have money? Is she famous? What work does he do? 
Do they look like us? What color is their skin? What school do they attend? Do they have a college degree? And if so, which college? Truth is, all those matters are irrelevant to God. And as God continues to shape us to be more and more like Jesus, they will become increasingly irrelevant to us as well. There are almost 8 billion, 7.46 billion more exactly, of people in our world today. 2.4 billion profess to be Christians, followers of Jesus. If each Christian simply prayed for two people, and those two people each came to know Jesus Christ, the entire world would be following Jesus, just two. 55 million people die every year. 35 million die every year without knowing Jesus. There are 100,000 people that will die today, just today, without any hope of eternity. Think about that. Every day. This talk about harvest needs to have a sense of urgency to it. I met a man a while back who claimed to have led thousands of people to Jesus Christ. And I asked him, what's the secret? And he says, there's no secret. God opens the door and I just walk through him. I just pray every day that God will use me, that God will make me sensitive to when the door opens that I might be able to walk through. Prayer and harvest always go together. You and I need to seize the opportunity while the harvest is plentiful. Last week, every one of us had multiple opportunities to witness to the name of Jesus. And most of us, including me, blew it. Your coworker, who couldn't understand why you couldn't play golf this afternoon, did you tell him why? Your neighbor who asked several times how she can cope with her husband. Your coworker who was just diagnosed with stage four cancer. Your acquaintance at the bank whose son just died. Did you tell him about Jesus? If Christians were faithful, Every professional evangelist, every mission board, every crusade worker would be out of a job. See, God designed his news, his good news, to be shareable. You don't need a formal gospel presentation. You just need to tell the story of what God has done in your life. Truth is, being sent is not enough. You have to go. That's what Jesus did. The Father sent Jesus into this world for us, for you, and for me. And Jesus went. Thank God he came. And now Jesus is sending us into the world. We're the plan. We need to go.
The gospel by its very nature is incarnational. John Maxwell tells a goofy story about a man who was known to be a very successful fisherman. One day a stranger showed up and asked the fisherman if he would take him fishing so he could learn his techniques and the fisherman consented. They went out. Five o'clock the next morning, they left the dock in the fisherman's boat and the stranger noticed that the fisherman didn't have any poles and he didn't seem to have any bait. He just had this old rusty tackle box and a net. Well, they got out to the middle of the lake. The fisherman stopped the boat, reached into the tackle box and pulled out a stick of dynamite. He lit it, tossed it into the water. There was a tremendous explosion and dozens of dead fish floated to the surface. He scooped them up into the boat. After observing this, the stranger reached into his pocket and pulled out a badge. And the badge said, game warden. And he said to the fisherman, you are under arrest. The fisherman calmly leaned over and took another stick of dynamite out of his, out of his tackle box and lit it and tossed it into the warden's lap and said, are you just going to sit there or are you going to fish? I told you it's a goofy story. But the explosive nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the presence and the power and the forgiveness and the love and the grace of God in heaven is now available to everyone on earth because of Jesus Christ. And he has placed this powerful, explosive gospel into your and my laps, into your and my hands. And the only remaining question is, are you just going to sit there or are you going to fish? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing Jesus Christ, for his willingness to come when he was sent. And now, Father, in our deep, heartfelt desire to be more and more like Jesus, send us as well. Use us in the harvest. Bring us to our knees. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.